Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. As new research shows young people in Britain are unpatriotic, unconservative and increasingly exposed to left-wing ideas, I'm joined by Professor Eric Kaufman to discuss the politics of the future. Is conservatism dead? No, it depends which country we're talking about. I think that the Conservative Party in Britain represents ideas that come from the 1970s and 80s for the most part and aren't very relevant today. But I also think that within conservative intellectual spaces and even in pockets in the Conservative Party and pockets in the think tanks, there's vitality there. And I think people understand what some of the emerging issues are, where to go politically in terms of where the voters are, but that thinking has yet to penetrate into the sort of real decision-making centers of the Conservative Party. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your recent research? So yeah, I've done two reports on culture wars, broadly speaking, topics for policy exchange. One of them is on young British people, and it's based on a survey with YouGov of 18 to 20-year-olds, mainly concentrating on what they were taught in school. And then the second is just a general adult survey based on the entire adult population where we're looking at people's support or opposition to culture wars topics by which I'm talking chiefly about issues around critical race theory in the past and the teaching of history in schools or cancel culture and threats to free speech enlightenment values. So I'm trying to get a sense of where the British public is on these issues. I should say that I've done US versions of both of these surveys as well. So yeah, that is the basis of the report. And I guess one of the top line findings really is that in British schools, basically three quarters of British school children have heard one of five critical race theory or radical gender and sexuality concepts in the school from adults. And those concepts that I polled on were three race concepts around unconscious bias, white privilege and systemic racism, and then two sort of gender sexuality topics. One, the idea of many genders and the other patriarchy. So three in four of these British 18 to 20 year olds, and the 18 year olds were still in school, the 19 and 20s recently graduated, said that they had heard from an adult or a teacher these terms, at least one of these terms. Moreover, the 18-year-olds, 78% of them had heard uh, one of these terms. The 20-year-olds, it was like 68. So it's increasing over time, the exposure levels, which means this stuff is permeating more intently. So the argument that some uh, on the left had made that it's not being taught, oh, it's just small, it's just a few isolated incidents, the American school in London, this survey, which is a random draw of young people, really lays that to bed. This is a random sample, random draw. We found three and four have exposure to this. And so that's the sort of top line finding in terms of school indoctrination, for example. And these are, by the way, I should say these are radical concepts that lack a basis in scientific quantitative measurement. They come from radical theories and they are arguably bordering on conspiracy theory. So that's being taught in schools, even though schools have a duty not to indoctrinate and to treat all issues impartially. And the other question we asked, by the way, was 
when these concepts were taught, were you taught an opposing view? And only in seven in 10 cases, they were taught this as fact with no opposing view, or they were taught that this is the only respectable view, is to have the kind of critical social justice view. Only in three out of 10 cases were they obeying the law, if you like, and actually presenting an, an alternative respectable view. So what we have essentially is a significant majority of British school ch children are being taught radical theories on race and gender as fact. And that is indoctrination. It is in violation of the law. So that is the number one. The other thing we found is in the wider adult survey. In the wider adult survey, if you actually look at people's answers to questions around critical race theory or cancel culture, what you find is the public as a whole, it's over two to one, what I would call the cultural socialist perspective which is the kind of woke perspective that says all identity groups must have equal outcomes number one and number two we have to be hypersensitive to the to offending a member of any one of these groups even if it's not an actual not just an average member of these groups but the most sensitive member of these groups and by the way that's obviously going to incentivize a certain weaponization of claims of I've been emotionally harmed by such and such a concept, J.K. Rowling being on, in the reading list or whatever. So what we see, that's, so that's the overall top line there is that most of the public are against this stuff. They would be against teaching school children that Britain is a racist country, for example. However, if you take the young population, 18 to 25, they diverge quite a bit from the average. So this is the other finding, is that the young people are actually a lot more woke. Now, that's a very big generalization. They're actually split. They're split 50-50, but the older population is 70-80, in some cases 90% opposed. And so there's quite a big gap. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is J.K. Rowling, should she be dropped by her publisher? And there you see the young 18 to 25s are split 50-50. 50% of them who have a, an opinion say, yeah, she should be dropped, which is a deeply, for anyone who's into the Enlightenment and free speech, that's deeply worrying. So we have a lot of this progressive illiberalism in that young population, particularly the young female population, and I'll talk about that in a minute, much less so amongst young male population. The other thing is that we, if we take a question that impinge on Britain's history and tradition and national identity, so should Winston Churchill's statue be removed from Parliament Square? Again, the 18 to 25s are split, whereas if you take the 50 plus, as with J.K. Rowling, they're like 85 to 5, absolutely not. And so we're seeing big differences on generational lines as well. So those are like the overall, the things that really jumped out the most, I'd say, from those reports. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> So let's start with this idea that young people are, are increasingly woke or illiberal. Hasn't that always been the case that young people have been left-wing? Not necessarily. The gap, say, if you take voting in this country, support for Labour and support for the Conservatives, and you look at the under-25s and the over-65s, we can go back to 1964 in the British election study, and that's varied between sort of 5 to 20 points, roughly, right the way through to about 20. 2010, even pushing towards 2015, and then suddenly after 2015, the gap between the young and the old is at 40 or 45 points. So there is a much wider gap politically than there historically has been. That's the first thing. Now, of course, younger people have historically been to the left of older people, but it's just that the scale, the gap is much larger than it's been. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say is that the young have been more to the left, but they've been more tolerant. So they've been more tolerant of, say, homosexuality, sex before marriage. It's a sort of in, an, in the direction of liberalism, let's call it. Freedom, I should be free to do what I want. What we're seeing now actually is we're seeing illiberalism amongst the young. So no, people shouldn't be free to do what they want if they offend group X, Y, or Z. And that's new. And in fact, in the U.S. where we see pretty much exactly the same trends, to some degree more extreme than here, but... We're seeing very similar trends there, and there we've got data going back to the early 1970s. So we can look at an 18-year-old in 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010, 2020, and what that shows is the 18-year-olds, it's the same age, but they're getting less tolerant on certain things. So not for a communist, a militarist to speak, that's fine, but a racist to speak, right? These questions have been asked for 50 years, and on that one question, there's been 
a divergence. Now, it's not, I shouldn't say that this is all of a sudden with this young generation. No, it's been a process that has been gaining speed since beginning sort of at a slow level with the baby boom generation, but accelerating. So actually, what I would say is this generation is simply reflecting decades of gradual cultural institutionalization of what I would call a cultural socialist worldview. And so, yeah, I think this is new. That there's no question we've seen a growth of intolerant absolutism amongst young people compared to young people in the past. So young people now are more intolerant than young people in the past around anything to do with historically disadvantaged identity groups. Now, there's this old adage that as people grow up, they become more conservative. Yeah. Do you think that's still true? Was that ever true? It was true. We've got U.S. and British studies that show about a 20-point change between under 25 and over 65. So it's true, and I expect it to be true in the future. But that's typically around a 20-point change over the life cycle. When we're talking about a 40, 45-point gap between young and old, there's no way that's going to be able to make up that distance, even half that distance. Now, of course, events could happen and things can change. But I would caution against people who say, oh, young people, once they get a home and they get a job and they have a mortgage and they have a family, then they'll become conservative. Um, I don't think that's the case. They may, I think they will move to the right economically, but they're not that far to the left economically anyway. They're not distinct. They're not so distinctive in their economic views from older people. It's their cultural views, views on this boundary between, say, speech and sensitivity. It's those sorts of issues where they are really diverging. And I don't see how that's going to be changed by acquiring material possessions, because it's fundamentally a spiritual and cultural thing. It's not a material thing. And we can already see, for example, young people who happen to have jobs, happen to maybe have children and a home, are not radically different from those who don't have those things. So I don't think anything material. The conservative party who thinks somehow these people are going to morph magically into Tory voters, no, I don't think they are. They're going to probably vote their values, and that means they're going to, we're going to see progressively, I would argue, say in 20 years, the median voter in Britain, I think, will look more like the median voter in where I come from in Canada, which is that the conservatives are a natural party of opposition. They come into power every so often, but they're not a natural party of government. They're a natural party of opposition. And I think Britain's heading towards that future. If I were to predict, given the views of younger people. Now, having said that, I think I should say that the views of young men are much less different from the population. In It's young women who are the most different. And so it's going to be interesting. And that gender gap is there amongst young people in Canada and the U.S. It's like a massive gender gap. What happens to that going forward is going to be really interesting to watch. What I would say is I think that as this generation becomes the median voter, we're going to see big polarization on these cultural questions. It's already there, and I think it's going to be even more pronounced. Why are women more woke? Oh, and also, does that have an impact on the men who want to follow their politics <laughs> to gain advantages <laughs> in life? I think it might, because these dating sites where politics is increasingly being listed, and studies have shown that has a bigger impact than a lot of other attributes, probably there's an incentive to at least fake it, given where a lot of women are. Yeah, I think it may have that impact. Some of the stats are really astounding. In the U.S., not as much in Britain, but in the U.S. case, for example, the vast majority of women, st female students, for example, I think something to the tune of 90% are not Trump supporters in the top sort of 15 to 20% of U.S. universities. If you take non-Trump supporting women, the, the, per the percentage who would feel comfortable dating a Trump supporter is 7%. And that's giving you an impression. Of, and even if we go outside the student population to the wider young population, it looks almost as extreme as that. So clearly, that is a massive I issue. Um, but yeah, what is, what's going to happen in the future will be very interesting, I think. I think we see certain divisions, say, within the female population now in the U.S., for example, people who are stay-at-home mums are massively more Republican than those who are have a career, for example. So how, many, how these things are going to play out over time is going to be really interesting to watch. In the recent midterm elections, one of the major indicators of whether you're a Republican or a Democrat is whether you're married or unmarried. And particularly with women, there was a big, there was a big gap. Once they became married, they basically became much more Republican-leaning. Yeah, I guess the question there is to what extent 
does marriage change views or to what extent do people with certain views, are they more likely to get married? Which getting married is now not as automatic as it used to be. And so to some degree, getting married is associated with certain things like maybe being Christian, maybe being suburban, all, a, a number of things which are not necessarily something everyone will go through. I just don't think that these necessarily, these life milestones are going to be magically to change it. Now, what I think, we, we already know that in Britain, for example, people who don't go to university, who right now are not that different in their politics from people who do go to university, so this is already there by the time people set foot on campus. Universities aren't having that much effect. But what we see is the ones who don't go to university do become more conservative much more quickly. And now, I'm not saying they become radically more conservative, but it looks like their views converge more, whereas the ones who do go to university, they converge less. But it's early days on the data on that. I want to talk about some of the reasons why you think, particularly in Britain, woke ideas have become so popular among young people. Okay, and, and, yeah. and that might be because the opposite, i.e. Toryism or Tories, are seen as so unpopular. And the sort of the status of being a Tory is so low. From my own experience, that <laughs> word Tory is used as an insult among people early, early 20s, right. my age. And it's really seen as a sort of stigma. If you're a Tory, you're uncaring or you're mean or right, whatever. Right. So how much does status come into this? I think it comes into this, but I think there's a famous sociologist called Max Weber who had this metaphor that it's the culture that, that it's a bit like the switchman on a track for a railroad. The culture kind of decides where, which track the train's going to go down. And then self-interest, like status, making more money, earning more profit, all of that stuff is the locomotive. And it's moving down a track. So what I'd say is the culture came first, sets up the incentive system, tells you what's prestigious, and then you go after it. And, and I also say, you asked about women as well. So women will always tend to take on whatever is the communal norm. They will tend to back the community norm much more. So in, in 1970, female students were more conservative than men. They were more religious than men. Those were the norms. Now, the norms are cultural socialism or wokeness. So they're going to be more, they're going to, inf inf I won't say enforce, but they're going to support those, they're going to back those more. Whereas the men are more likely to be contrarians. And so this is one of the reasons why we're seeing a difference. Now, of course, it is also the case that to some degree, this ideology is a better deal for women to the extent that it is about equal, equal results, let's say, in the boardroom and women are underrepresented it's a good deal. Now, obviously, we know on the gender-critical feminist issues, there are perhaps threats as well coming out of this for women, but those so far haven't landed in their consciousness. I still think the main reason that they are supporting this is because they tend to back whatever are the community norms. And in, particularly in elite spaces and youth culture spaces, the community norm is a kind of culture of anti-Toryism. As you said, Ed West's book, small men on the wrong side of history talking about the culture, which has really been there for decades of anti-Toryism. It's not that new, but yet it's penetrated more deeply. And perhaps more in importantly, the sort of nature of the ideology of left, that, that the left has, uh, is pushing has really pivoted from class to identity. And that change really took, began in the 60s, began with Herbert Marcuse and the new left switching away from the proletariat to African-Americans and de decolonization of non-European peoples. They became the stars rather than the proletariat. But it took some time for that to permeate the consciousness. And, but now it very much has. It's taken over the left. It dominates academia in terms of the left as well. And yeah, I think they are now, of course, that's what's being taught in schools. That's what the influencers on social media and the cel celebrity culture and the movie industry are all, and the tech industry are all pushing these sacred values. And so I think that really informs a lot of this wokeness. So for, I'll give you an example that these sorts of, the belief that Tories are kind of racist or sexist or transphobic, but especially say racist, well, that lies at the core of a lot of the political prejudice over dating, which by the way bleeds into hiring prejudice. And so the people who are, who say they wouldn't date a Brexiteer are much more likely to say they wouldn't hire a Brexiteer. So this isn't just a, a playful thing around freedom of association. This is actually bleeds into breaking the law on you can't discriminate on the basis of philosophical belief. Uh, that's in the 
EU law that's now in British law. But it comes the people who most believe that, like in the U.S. case, white leftists who believe that white Republicans are racist, for example, who, believe, who agree to that statement, are just much more likely to say that people who disagree with me politically are immoral. So they're moralizing politics into a sort of black-white thing rather than they have different values and maybe a different assessments of how the world works. So you mentioned Ed West's book. Yeah. And in his book, he basically argues that wokeism or whatever you want to call it, is the new religion, it's the new Christianity. And he also talks about the collapse of religion, and this is something that many people comment on, is declining Christianity. Are people taking up politics as a sort of replacement for religion? You talk about morality. If people were gaining their sort of moral values from wokeism or celebrities or whatever, is that what's, is that what's happening? I actually disagree to some degree with Ed West and Douglas Murray on this in the sense that Britain wasn't a particularly religious place even 20, 30 years ago, actually. I'm not sure that's the big change. Now, that's changed more in the United States, yes, that's true. But if you look in detail at the survey data, for example, whether you're religious or not doesn't make a huge difference to your attitudes on these woke issues when we take into account your party identification and your ideology, for example. Now, yes, being religious does influence whether you're a Republican or not. It does influence whether you're a conservative. But if you're secular and conservative or secular and Republican, then you're going to be anti-woke. And we've had these sort of secular belief systems, socialism, and we've even, to some degree, nationalism is to some degree uh, one of these, call them secular religions. I don't think it's so very important, this idea about religious loss, as it is that we've just got a new version, a new ideology, a new secular religion compared to the old secular religions. We've got a new one. It is a mind virus. It's like COVID. And if you contract it, you can then spread it. And if institutions become super spreaders, then so it's that model of a kind of a, um, epidemiological model that I would go with rather than necessarily this kind of psychological argument like, oh, people of a whole and the reason wokeness is there is because religion is gone. I don't necessarily think that's right. I mean, there, are, there is obviously a certain degree to which that's true, but I think you could equally say that it's the decline of patriotism or, or of some, or, or the decline of socialism. So I think this is more about a new ideology that has infiltrated. It started off in academia. We can see that there's a st studies of 75 million academic abstracts. Look, and you can see that terms like sexism and racism were being heavily used already in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s. And it's not really till the 2010s the media catches up. So something happens in the 2010s with Twitter and social media that allows academics and journalists to influence each other. And then clickbait journalism also maybe tr throw Trump in there, throw Brexit in there. And all of that kind of leads to this very partisan media space emerging. I don't know how much you've studied the Cultural Revolution in China, but it's an interesting, interesting thing that people always refer to, and they make these comparisons. You can look at students destroying yeah. their teachers in a much more violent way, but there are comparisons. Do you think that's a legitimate thing to, to look at and to study and to make conclusions from? Yeah, I think it absolutely is. And George Orwell in 1984, in a way, foreshadows the Cultural Revolution. It's sort of the right metaphor, okay? A couple of things. One. The same things that today's cultural socialism are attacking, the past, historical narratives, proper names, traditions, the Cultural Revolution was going after what it called the four old, old Chinese traditions. It wanted to wipe the slate clean to the year zero. So we're seeing that occurring with all the statue toppling and the sort of rewriting of history. But then the other part of this is the George Orwell, two plus two equals five, you must believe it, say it until you believe it, that truth becomes political. The meaning of words becomes political. And that also, I think, is something that comes out of that cultural revolution, that reality and science is essentially doesn't exist. It's all what's whatever's politically correct. And we're seeing that now if you just, what is a woman, for example, or is sex a spectrum? We're seeing the denial of science in this area. We're seeing, let's just say, incredible disinformation on the extent of racism, for example. The Canada has, it's worse in North America in many regards, but Canada has something called the, it had a, what is called the residential school system for indigenous Canadians, which the government, essentially, the media has all called a genocide. And there was an incident, and it's not even remotely close to that. It's a, there was an assimilationist element. There was a schooling element to it. There were, there were people who were undoubtedly mistreated. 
but what there was there's no actual attempt to say were children who went to these indigenous these residential schools were they treated worse than children who went to day schools on the reserve what are their health outcomes compared to people in non-indigenous settings at that time no attempt at anything objective or truth seeking it's a narrative and everyone's got to bow and the whole canadian parliament even endorsed a sort of genocide resolution and it's just mass hysteria it's unbelievable now it's nothing as extreme as that has occurred in this country but it's just to say that yeah people are jumping on these bandwagons of hysteria and it's not fact based and that is very much the way the cultural revolution operated incidentally my dad was briefly in china during the cultural revolution and saw all these red books and all these kids attacking different states it is quite a quite a, a remarkable episode and then but the same thing was happening cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com ready to pop the question The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code Listen to get fifty dollars off your purchase of five hundred dollars or more. That's code Listen at BlueNile.com for fifty dollars off. BlueNile.com code Listen. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Thing in Stalinist Russia too, and with that Cultural Revolution, there's, from what I've read, there's somewhat of a myth that it was all orchestrated by Mao. Whereas I think that the role of the Chinese state was perhaps limited compared to the sort of, as you say, the virus element of this sort of infection, the natural infection among young people of this mass hysteria that sort of grew not by government but by just ordinary people. So perhaps that's an interesting comparison as well. Let's talk about the minority of conservatives who of young people who are conservatives because that is an interesting I'm interested in that group of people I right. count myself as one of them. I see a lot of social media posts that are conservative memes. I see a lot of young people my age or who I know just looking at the stuff on TikTok on Instagram and all of this. So I think there is a sort of uh, I don't know there's a, a ca- countercultural movement or something. What do you make of that? Do you think there has been is there any significant conservative minority has there been any sort of countercultural movement that you've seen in the UK or in the US among young people? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely there has been and you're right about this. And it's obviously it's the survey data some surveys will pick this up. So there has been the odd survey that shows Gen Z, which is the youngest your generation probably compared to the millennials being more opposed to cancel culture than the millennials. There is some there are some countries like Canada where Gen Z also is more is relatively conservative compared to the millennials. So there's there are some places where we're seeing something that's distinct and also there's been surveys showing that higher sort of internet use or getting most of your news or I'm trying to remember what the actual metric was but I think more time online was correlated with being more conservative. And I think part of what's going on is that the online space is where is much more even. And in fact, a lot of the big influencers are right of center uh, online because it's more of a free space. Yes, there are there's shadow banning and there are ban- there are things that tech firms can do but only really at the edges. There's it is still a much freer place than the institutions which tend to be more captured. So something like universities it's very difficult to get a job be promoted get published if you are breaking taboos whereas in the media and also it's very hard to create a new university right you can't just open up a new university there's established hierarchies and rankings and donations and all this so yeah because that media space is, is more open we're seeing that there are more countercultural influences online and young people are accessing those now there is still a big gender difference and again i mentioned like in britain the young men are really not actually that 
woke in, in many ways, even if you compare them to older generations. So it's very much certain categories. I mean, women, LGBT, which on some surveys, at least if you ask people, in my survey it was 29% of the 18 to 20s were LGBT. In the U.S. surveys that I've seen, it's anywhere from like 21 to 30%. Now, sorry, yeah. just to clarify that number, yeah. is, is that representative of young people? 29% represent uh, sort of uh, identifying as LGBT. It seems really high to me. But. Right, so there's a couple of things to note. One is that number might be inflated. So the census numbers where we have them are a half or a third of that. Now, I still think the, pro- the actual number is somewhere around 15, but a lot of, so the fast, the largest segment of that would be, say, female bisexuality. A lot of that female bisexuality is just identification, not behavior. And we know that, again, from U.S. surveys where they actually ask about sexual partners. So, yeah, an increasing number of these LGBT identifiers are not actually LGBT in terms of behavior. It, they may have flickering sentiments. But what I'm saying is, in a way, that there are these certain subgroups within the young population that chunk who will say I'm LGBT, even when they're probably not, would be one of them. Women much more so than men. Because, because it's so fashionable to be LGBT. Uh, yeah, so the sort of social pressures are different and, the, and maybe it's interesting or it's seen as being marking you out from the herd. It is interesting that ethnic minorities in Britain are less woke. On these surveys, for example, they were less likely to support political correctness than whites. And I think that's interesting because I think they're, com- they're not as immersed in the same youth culture to the same extent, perhaps. And what you actually see is that it's the same in the U.S. The white young population, the white population is more politicized, more polarized than the minority population. And that's showing up as well in the survey. But yeah, so I would say, I don't, if I had to predict, I don't think that the young people in this country are going to get more left-wing. And there is some evidence, let's say, from the last sort of 18 to 21 is a little bit more conservative in this country than 22 to 30, let's say. So I don't think it's going to get any more left and any more woke. And then there are reasons for this, including psychological reasons, but also the fact that unlike the Cultural Revolution or Stalinist Russia, because of the online space, because of the counterculture that actually, despite the shadow banning and despite the censorship or whatever, is still reasonably free to get its message out. So between that and people's psychology, I don't see it getting any more woke. I think it's probably reached about as far as it'll go. But having said all that, I think that if you have a population that's 50-50 on J.K. Rowling becoming the median voter, then the power of that ideology is just going to be hugely increased, especially in the elite institutions where these people are going to be overrepresented. People like Andrew Tate are interesting. You can debate whether he's conservative. I don't think he really is conservative, but he's certainly not woke and he's very anti-woke. And he was fantastically popular among many young men. And as you say, they, despite all the, they banned him from everything, but he's still, Mm. he's still seen by many people. I'm sure he can get past all these bans or whatever. And Jordan Peterson is another one. And so there are some figures who, who really are popular who aren't woke among young people. And that is a phenomenon that perhaps is explained by your answer. Let's talk about the schools. I'm interested in British schooling in particular and the research that you've done. How reliable is the data on this stuff? So I'd be interested to know whether, for example, in your polling, you asked a sort of control question, perhaps a made-up term that that no one had ever heard of and see how many people were just instinctively answering yes. Yeah, that's a really good question, and I think that's been put to me, and I think... If I had to do it over again, I might have asked that they, were you taught that the moon landings were faked or something. My hunch on this is we're not going to get, we may get a few percentage points, but I could be wrong. I'm willing to be disproven by if someone wants to do that, and I may do it in the future. What, would I, what I would say is this, however. If you look at the terms that we polled on, there's a lot of variation. So only 20% said they were taught that there were many genders. Now, it could be that the question is, is that number actually zero, and therefore we should subtract 20 from everything? I'm a bit skeptical. I think that maybe the number may be less than 20%. I don't know exactly what it is, but I don't think it's zero. And there were other terms where we had, you know, I think 55. I think for patriarchy, it was something like 55. So there's a lot of variation within the terms that we polled on. So it's not just, oh, yeah, tick, tick, tick. I think there is a meaningful difference there that people are picking up on. 
Also, there were some differences in exposure levels depending on, so for example, more diverse urban areas, there was more of the critical race theory terms being taught, which kind of makes some sense in a way, right? So I just think that it may be the case. I'd, I'd love to go back and do it again, but I don't think it's going to amount to much. Is this down to teachers, activist teachers, who are more to the left? I, it's a combination. So we asked whether people had heard it from teachers or, or heard it from an adult, which might be, for example, a member of an activist organization in assembly or giving a talk. And it's a rough split 50-50 in most cases. So there are activist teachers that are pushing this, and there are external third-party contractors who are bringing in race and gender ideology. And there are a lot of these providers which report from Don't Divide Us using freedom of information requests and they picked up like in the councils that actually responded to them, which was only a minority, a significant number were essentially telling their schools to teach this stuff. So it, that research pretty much reinforces what we found and it makes, a, makes sense. So you have these external organizations and radical teachers. Do I think most teachers are doing this? But I think the question is whether radical teachers are doing it and whether head teachers are allowing people to come in and essentially push these radical theories. And I think for the most part they are because a lot of this is also in the education schools, so teacher training, particularly the more prestigious education schools. And the curriculum they're teaching is shot through with these assumptions around white privilege and systemic this and that, again, which are not scientifically based. But then that discipline in education is not also necessarily, they're not going to stick to what I would call positive fist, falsifiable scientific type studies. They're going to go for these meta theories, quasi-conspiracy theories such as systemic racism and patriarchy, which is all about academics, citing academics who are essentially more or less conjuring this stuff up as a theory, right? Yeah. But those ideas aren't actually in the curriculum, as in the national curriculum. Obviously, the conservatives aren't that stupid. So wh why are they... Well, I'm not, I'm not sure whether they are that stupid, but I would say that teachers have a lot of freedom, of course, to, to, to go off-piste and to use download materials and, and teach them in class. So it's not the case, I think, that they are only teaching to the letter of a national curriculum. And so a lot of this material is coming in that way. And so part of what DDU are trying to do is provide counter materials, but of course, unless you have teachers who are interested in using those counter materials, they're not going to get taught. It's interesting because I imagine if I was a head teacher, unless I was overtly political or anti-woke, then I probably, the sort of default position is probably to let this stuff happen or to teach this stuff for all right. the reasons that, that people can talk about. But is it, has there been a significant shift in teachers becoming more left-wing in recent years? That's an interesting question. So, yeah, I think that in the days of corporal punishment, and I'm not sure they always were left-wing, and obviously there were a lot more male teachers, but that's not even the male-female thing. I just think there's probably been a shift. Now, we know... Where we've got proper measures is in academia and in journalism. And in the case of the U.S., for example, the shift has been something like one and a half left to one on the right in the mid-60s to five to one left to right in journalism and about six to one in, in left to right in academia. But that's including, that's right down to the sort of two-year colleges and the sort of not particularly elite universities. And in all disciplines, if we just take social sciences, it's gone so from something like three to one left to right in the mid-60s to anything between 12 and sort of 20 to one. I mean, it's, it's gone probably, let's say, 12 to 14 to one in the U.S. In this country, it's about nine to one left to right. And that's been a big change from about one and a half to one in the mid-60s. So now the teachers, the data that I've seen from YouGov's panel would suggest the teachers are not as left-wing as academics. But academics, if academics are sort of 75% on the left, teachers might be, say, 60, 65. They're not as left-wing because there are different ways to become a teacher. So I don't think it's as extreme uh, as in universities. But what I would say is that there's no question that the dominant strand, the dominant share, are leaning left, uh, as has probably been true for a while. But the content of what left means has shifted from class and socialism to cultural socialism and identity. Okay, so we've had a conservative government for 12 years. Right. Uh, this has happened under their watch. Are they aware of the problem? Do they understand 
the problem and why have they let this happen? A couple of reasons. I think the Conservative Party are largely a business liberal party, a bit like the FDP in Germany. They're not for the most part, they are not a sort of national conservative or populist conservative party or even a cultural conservative party. Most of the MPs, there have been MP surveys. One was conducted by Tim Bale and his colleagues and published a few years ago, which showed that the typical Tory MP surveyed was very far to the left of the typical Tory voter and actually to the slightly to the left of the average voter on cultural questions. On economic questions, they're way to the right of their base and of the average voter. So who are these people? They are basically people who came through elite universities, became Thatcherites, read their Hayek, and are essentially libertarian economic liberal types. And you saw that very much. That in Johnson, you see it in Trust. And, and despite Johnson's, to some degree, populism, but he's actually in many ways a global capitalist liberal. Trust and Quarteng, again, are even more that way inclined. So the sort of dominant intellectual strand in the party is from the 1980s and hasn't really shifted. The cultural conservative people like the Common Sense Group, Kemi Badnock, and maybe Suella, and a few of these people, they are a minority, and they're not really in control of candidate selection. And so until that occurs now, and you can see through the Cameron administration, Ter Theresa May, they actually put this stuff on steroids. The, the Equality Act, 2010, and burning injustices, and all of these things very so much they are... This. Yeah, they've been fueling this. They wanted to be on the good side of the race industry, of the activists, and so they've helped to perpetuate all of this stuff with very little pushback. Yeah. Do you think that there's a complete void in conservative ideology in Britain at the moment? And what I mean by that is conservative politicians today would probably be vocally anti-woke in their statements. Yeah. <laughs> Some would. Many of them, as you correctly, actually, you're completely right, many of them wouldn't be. But you would expect Rishi Sunak or Suella Braverman or whoever, some senior conservative politicians, would probably yeah. be anti-woke in their statements. But do they present their own philosophy? Do they present their own vision of society or their own sort of conservative belief on how, on how we should structure our lives or whatever? Do you know what I mean? Where that, perhaps that void was filled by Christianity before, I don't know. But there's no, it seems to me they have no sort of viable alternative that they're proposing. No, I mean, you have, they've got economic philosophies, whether it be more trussite libertarianism or the one nation economic conservatism. They're much more comfortable talking about bread and butter economic issues because you're not going to get cancelled for talking about economic issues. You're not going to be accused of being a racist on the BBC. What's lacking is the kind of the courage to be able to say, actually, we're going to have an audit and we're going to remove funding for DEI initiatives across the civil service that are taught in this way. So that's diversity and inclusion. Sorry, diversity, equity and inclusion, diversity training. And also we are going to, we're going to write guidance. So for example, they could insist that the guidance from the Department of Education defines anti-racism only as traditional individual-on-individual individual racism, not as systemic. So what they should be saying is systemic racism does not fall under the consensus value of anti-racism. It's a contested concept, should not be taught in the schools. If you had a government that had a, the understanding, B, the knowledge, and C, the guts. That's what they should do. Now, of course, you're going to have a fight with the woke establishment that runs the teachers' unions, etc. but you've got to have that fight. If you compare politicians here in the Conservative Party with pe people like Glenn Youngkin, Ron DeSantis in the United States, who have been much more vocal and not only willing to say some things, but to, to enact policies, to join up the policies with the campaigning, to campaign centrally, force the other party to answer, okay, you're teaching this that the U.S. is a racist country in schools and your whites have privilege. I don't think we should do that. Or you're teaching about that there are many sexes or whatever it happens to be. I don't think that should be in the curriculum. And force the other side to actually defend that practice. And if they defend it, they get punished at the polls. And that hasn't happened here. And one of the other problems, and we may be getting too inside baseball yeah, yeah, here sure. a bit, but this is something that I've looked into for a long time, particularly in the civil service, why wokeism has become so prevalent. Examples of it 
etc. And the, conserv- the way that the civil service is structured in the UK is different to in the US. Obviously, in the US, they have political appointments. So they have, I think, over 40,000 roles that are politically appointed. Republicans come in, they put their own right, people in. Right. They've got, ideologically, those people are generally on the Republican right. side. Whereas in the UK, we have this sort of supposedly impartial civil service, which I think some of the stories that, that we've done at The Telegraph would perhaps challenge this idea that the civil service is in any way impartial when it comes to woke and cultural issues anymore. So the Conservative Party have to, or, and politicians, they have a couple of advisors, SPADs, who are, conserv- non, who are potential, supposed to be Conservative. Many of them aren't. Right. They've got a lot on their plate. They've got to be dealing with a series of crises that the country is facing. Do they even have time to, to think <laughs> about this stuff, to start to tackle any of this stuff? I doubt it. I've spoken to SPADs and they do a brilliant job, some of them. But, but how can they, as a dozen people, change this stuff? Do you know what I mean? So to be, weirdly, to be fair to the Conservatives, they actually face a structural problem in the UK in particular, whereas in the US maybe it's slightly different. I, yeah, I don't actually think it's the, all that different. A lot of the same problems occur in terms of the age, with the agent, government agencies in the U.S., and they tend to be woke, and it's very hard to get people uh, to get them changed. So I think it is a similar problem. I think that actually, in some ways, things are more favorable in the U.K. because central government has more power. There's not a state level to deal with, and there's not necessarily the same courts as your constraint. But when you really, if you really look at the differences have to do with candidate selection because of the primary system, because of the way Trump, and I disagree with many things Trump has done, and certainly with the whole Trump cult, but there is no question that the older Republican establishment was just about low taxes, had to be replaced with candidates that more or less reflected that reflect their voting base much more closely. That hasn't occurred here yet. It is still a kind of establishment that's running the Conservative Party, and they have not been overthrown the way the Republican National Congress establishment has been overthrown. And that's, I think, the key process. Now, of course, it's the case in an economic crisis, economic issues are the most important issues. But this is my point on this is a management issue. This isn't really, shouldn't necessarily be the way you define yourself as a conservative. Yes, we want to manage, we want to give shorter waiting times in the NHS, we want to have lower taxes, we want to have more economic growth. Maybe we have to sacrifice one, maybe we can't do lower taxes when we're in an economic crisis, fine. I just think these are very narrow parameters you're operating in, strict constraints. I don't think economics should be the way in which conservatism is defined now, when the, especially since the major threat, these are not just tiny little culture wars on campus, This is core Western values. Do you believe in freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, objective truth, science, national cohesion? All of these things are, these should be more important than a few points, tenths of a point on GDP. And yet it's no, it's the obsession with defining conservatism by, hey, we're going to have a higher GDP somehow. I think that's mistaken. And so I think what we need is a kind of revolution within conservatism to somehow deselect the MPs that are just essentially don't care about culture, they only care about libertarianism. I just, very briefly to end the yeah. interview, this is slightly off, off track, but I just okay. do want to talk about Canada for sure. a second. That's where you're from. Yeah. And there's, Canada has, I've, I keep reading these incredible articles about Canada recently, in particular about their euthanasia pro- pro- programs. And the, could you see, is Britain heading in that direction? And can you just talk a little bit about how Canada, or sort of the politics of Canada and the social politics as well. Yeah, Canada is where I think the future lies if wokeness gets the upper hand. So in Canada, for example, wokeness is not just in the institutions like universities or the media. It's actually, we've got a woke prime minister, a woke administration. They're trying to enact, for example, laws that'll make it very, very easy for the government to censor, freeze bank accounts, as we saw with the trucker protest, to pursue episodes of collective mass hysteria, like the claim that there were 215 bodies in mass graves found in this indigenous school. It's complete nonsense. Never been walked back, despite no evidence for this. But... That's where a country goes when there is no conservative opposition, or it's a weak conservative opposition. I should say that the only real difference between Canada and Britain is that, or in the U.S., is that in Britain and the U.S., the the right and the left in the electorate are roughly evenly balanced. Whereas in Canada, and this has been true for a long time, the left has had about a 60% versus the right 40%, excluding Quebec, which is more like Britain and the rest of Europe. But if we take the English part, 
it's, there's been a 60-40 split, and that allows, it just changes everything. It essentially means that the party that's naturally in power is going to lean left, and it's going to be difficult for the right to get in. They have to, the right has to compromise on a lot of these things. Political correctness is much more intense, or is more intense there. You can't talk, for example, about limiting immigration. It's impossible. So that sort of level of the Overton window of acceptable debate is just much narrower. So are Canadian Conservatives far more left-wing than even British Conservatives, for example? Or they are on cultural, in cultural issues. So even the current populist leader of the Conservatives is extremely timid on anything to do with immigration, wokeness. The only thing he'll talk about is economics, except for the only place he's gone a bit out on the limb is uh, abolishing funding for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which is I'm 100% behind that, but it's not enough. You've got to start Steady tackling yeah. this industry. And so far, even a populist like Polyev has not been willing to do that. So that kind of shows you the difference. But yeah, in terms of you, Canadian universities will openly advertise for only, say, black or indigenous candidates. They, they will. It's open discrimination. You have these laws which would essentially criminalize. It, it seems like it would criminalize saying a woman is an adult human. So there's a whole range of these quite censorious bills that the uh, Trudeau government has been trying to enact. So if you are a young conservative in Britain, and I'm sure many of them are maybe thinking about emigration, where, uh, where would they go? Where should they go? Sh- should they go? Obviously, they shouldn't go to Canada. No, I mean, that's not definitely not. not. <laughs> maybe, but maybe Florida, maybe Hungary. Where do you think is I'm, so by, Yeah, Europe is obviously, I think Europe is in many ways more conservative than Britain, number one, most European countries. I would say... North America, so the U.S. is more like 50-50, and yes, of course, red states are going to be conservative majority, places like Florida and Texas, and especially because the Latino population has been shifting to the right. Yeah, I don't, I certainly wouldn't give up on Britain. I would say that there's probably going to be a labor government, wokeness will probably get worse, but on the other hand, it's not as much of a lost cause. I think Canada is in a much worse place than Britain, so Britain is certainly not the worst. <laughs> On that optimistic note, thank you so much, Eric, for joining us. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.